People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Uh, this is People of the Book, and it is uh, Friday the 13th. We've got lots of books to discuss on this overcast Joburg day. We've had a few week break from the book show because of uh, Pesach, and we're ready to get going. Just a few things about what's going to be on the show in the next few weeks. Uh, next week, I'm going to be recording an interview with Leon Schreiber, the author of a book called Coalition Country, and that is a book looking at the future of South African politics and the fact that following all the trends from the most recent elections in South Africa, the ANC looks like it's going to be receiving close to or possibly less than 50% of the national vote in the next election. And this pattern really started bubbling to the surface in the last municipal elections when the ANC lost the metros, control of the metros of Johannesburg, Tswane and Nelson Mandela Bay. And Leon Schreiber, in his book, Coalition Country, is trying to extrapolate all these political trends and looking to see what type of a political landscape South Africa will have when there's no one majority party, either at municipal or at provincial or at national levels of politics. And the need to create coalitions becomes the overriding narrative of the political landscape in South Africa. So that's a very, very important book uh, going into an election year next year, 2019. And he'll be talking about those ideas. And then in May, there is there are a number of um, book fairs in South Africa, Franschhoek in the Cape and Kingsmead in Joburg. And a number of authors, local and international, will be coming into South Africa, will coming up to Joburg and will be flying into South Africa for that. And we're working very hard behind the scenes to secure as many interviews with as wide a range of authors as possible. I can tell you that on the 11th of May, we'll be having two authors, or actually three authors, in the studio. The first is a local book written about one person by another. It's called Winging It. It's available in the shops at the moment. And it's about Jonathan Kaplan, who is the, South Af- the famous South African rugby referee. And it's the story of his son. He decided to have a child when he was around 50. He hadn't found anyone to marry. So he hired a surrogate mother to carry his son and it's the story of Jonathan Kaplan and his son and it was written by Joan Jowell a famous South African author her first book was The Other Side of Shame came out quite a few years ago she's written a few books since then so that will be Jonathan Jowell and Jonathan Kaplan in the studio on the 11th of May, something to look forward to. And on the same day, we'll be interviewing international or English-based author Kate Moss. She's an author of historical fiction, and her new book, which is being launched at the beginning of May, has a very strong Franschhoek connection. 
and it's about it's, it's a historical fiction that sets the whole book's really set in France in the 1500s, involving the the Huguenots in France under attack from the Catholics and the French state, and it's a uh, it's a it's a family drama and a historical fiction and a historical thriller. But it starts, the very f- opening scene starts in Franschuk in the Cape. And she will be coming to South Africa for the launch of this book. And she'll also be in our studios. I'm working on a few other interviews at the same time. Hopefully, we'll be able to get Greg Hurwitz, the author of Orphan X, Nowhere Man, and Hellbent, one of the great thriller series that have come out from uh, any publishing house in the last few years. Hopefully we'll be able to get Greg Hurwitz on the show as well. So that's very exciting, very exciting author interviews that we, we're booking here on High FM for people of the book. The first book that I'm going to talk about today is a book written by Mary Beard, and it's actually a, a TV documentary tie-in. In, the 19, in 1969, the BBC broadcast a documentary called Civilization and it was presented by Kenneth Clark who as an art historian introduced the television watching audience of Britain and then the rest of the world to his view of the history of art and it was civilization. It was grand, epic BBC documentaries. But it was very focused on Western art. And even in Western art, it was very focused on certain parts of Western art and focusing on the genius of specific artists. The BBC a few years ago took a decision to remake civilization and to vastly extend the scope and the references in the TV series and nine episodes of this documentary were made and they decided to change the name of the series from Civilization to Civilizations with a big big emphasis on the S in Civilizations. And they also identified three presenters who would present these nine episodes. Five of them were presented by Simon Sharma. Simon Sharma, we actually had him on the show last year to talk about his new book, which came out in October. He is a world-famous historian and professor of art history and is also a professor of art. Currently, he lectures creative, uh, creative nonfiction in Columbia University, and last year we interviewed him for his book, The Story of the Jews, Volume 2. We managed to speak to him when he was in London while he was filming for Civilizations. Two episodes of Civilizations are presented by David Olasuga, a British uh, historian who actually also has a South Africa or Southern African connection. One of his books was called The Kaiser's Holocaust, and that was a, a book documenting the Germans' uh, program of killing off the of Van Bohn Herreros living in what was the German colony of Southwest Africa. And he focuses on modern, more the more modern eras. And then the third 
presenter of Civilizations is Mary Beard. And it's her book that we're going to discuss straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM, and I've just given an introduction to the book Civilizations by Mary Beard, and it's How Do We Look and the Eye of Faith. Mary Beard is a classicist. She lectures, she's a professor of classics at Cambridge University. She has written a number of books. She's made a number of TV documentaries. Her specific focus is ancient Rome, and uh, you can see her in her documentaries cycling around Rome on her bicycle, going to find gravestones, and the amount of information she can glean off an epitaph on a gravestone and recreate the lives of the dead Romans off those engraved messages is astounding. Now, in this book, she looks at two things. She has two episodes of the Civilization series, and each episode has a different focus. The first is the focus of art and the human figure and our relation, human forms relationship to art. And the second one is the relationship between art and religion. Now, in order to put across the ideas that Mary Beard speaks about on the TV program, Civilizations, and the book as well. So I want to read from the in beginning of her, her introduction to, to her book. And it's, she, said, she writes as follows. Civilization has always been contested argued over and impossible to pin down. In 1969, Kenneth Clark opened his BBC series Civilization by reflecting on the concept itself. What is civilization, he asked. I don't know. I can't define it in abstract terms yet, but I think I can recognize it when I see it. That was Kenneth Clark's opening comments. This betrayed a certain lofty self-confidence in his own cultural judgment, but Clark was also acknowledging the ragged and shifting edges of the category. This book is written in the conviction that what we see is as important to our understanding of civilization as what we read or hear. It celebrates a dazzling array of human creativity over thousands of years and across thousands of miles, from ancient Greece to ancient China, from sculpted human heads in prehistoric Mexico to a 21st century mosque on the outskirts of Istanbul. But it also prods at some of our certainties about how art works and how it should be examined. For it is not only about the men and women who, with their paints and pencils, their clays and chisels, created the images that fill our world, from cheap trinkets to priceless masterpieces. It is even more about the generations of humankind who have used, interpreted, argued over, and given meaning to those images. One of the most influential art historians of the 20th century, E. H. Gombrich, once wrote, There really is no such thing as art. There are only artists. I am putting the viewer of art back into the frame. Man is not a great man view of art, history, with all its usual history, heroes and geniuses. This is Mary Beard's introduction to her book, How Do We Look and the Eye of Faith, Civilizations. We concentrate on two of the most intriguing and contested themes in human artistic culture. Part one of the book, 
highlights the art of the body, focusing on some very early depictions of men and women around the world, asking what they were for and how they were seen, whether the colossal images of a pharaoh from ancient Egypt or the terracotta warriors buried with the first emperor of China. Part two turns to images of God and gods. It takes a wider time frame, reflecting on how all religions, ancient and modern, have faced irreconcilable problems in trying to picture the divine. It is not just about some particular religions, such as Judaism or Islam, that have worried about such visual images. All religions throughout history have been concerned about, and have sometimes fought over, what it means to represent God, and they have found elegant, intriguing, and awkward ways to confront the dilemma. The violent destructions of images is one end of an artistic spectrum that has idolatry at the other. Part of my work, part of my project, is to expose the very long history of how we look. All over the world, ancient art, its debates and its controversies still matter. In the West, the art of classical Greece and Rome in particular, and the different engagement people have had with that tradition over many centuries, still has an enormous impact on modern viewers, even if we do not always recognize it. Western assumptions about what a naturalistic representation of the human body is date back to a particularly artistic revolution in Greece around the turn of the 6th and 5th centuries BCE, and many of our ways of talking about art continue the conversations of the classical world. The modern idea that the female nude implies the existence of a predatory male gaze was not first thought up, as is often imagined, in the feminism of the 1960s. As part one will explain, what is believed to be the very first life-sized statue of a female nude in ancient Greece, a 4th century BCE image of the goddess Aphrodite provoked exactly the same kind of debate. And some of the earliest intellectuals that are known to us argued fiercely about the rights and wrongs of portraying gods in human forms. The 6th century BCE Greek philosopher, one Greek, one 6th century BCE Greek philosopher sharply observed that if horses and cattle could paint and sculpt, they would represent the gods like themselves, as horses and cattle. Clark's opening question, what is civilization, is one of my own main questions too. The two parts of this book are based on the two programs I wrote for the new BBC series of Civilizations, first broadcast in 2018. This was an attempt not to remake Clark's original version, but to take a fresh look at its themes with a much wider frame of reference, moving outside Europe. Class Clark once or twice strayed across the Atlantic, but that was all. And my mission is to stray back into prehistory as well. That is what the plural in the new title, Civilizations, indicate. We're reading from Mary Beard's introduction to her book. It's called Civilizations, How Do We Look in the Eye of Faith? It's a companion volume to the two episodes of the new BBC documentary Civilizations, which she presents. I am even more concerned than Clark with the discontents and debates around the idea of civilization and with how that rather fragile concept is justified and defended. One of its most powerful weapons has always been barbarity. We 
know that we are civilized by contrasting ourselves with those we deem to be uncivilized, with those who do not or cannot be trusted to share our values. Civilization is a process of exclusion as well as inclusion. The boundary between us and them may be an internal one. For much of world history, the idea of a civilized woman had been a contradiction in terms. Or the boundary between us and them can be an external one, as the word barbarian suggests. It was originally a derogatory and ethnocentric ancient Greek term for foreigners who could not who, that you could not understand because they spoke in an incomprehensible babble, bar, 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 hence barbarian. The inconvenient truth, of course, is that so-called barbarians may be no more than those with a different view from ourselves and what it is to be civilized and of what matters in human culture. In the end, one person's barbarity is another person's civilization. This is the introduction to Mary Beard's civilizations. How do we look and the eye of the faith? It's a very accessible book. Anyone who enjoys art, the history of art, if you're going to watch the BBC documentary series, Civilizations, this is a perfect companion. And not only did Mary Beard write uh, a book to accompany her programs, but David Olusuga also did. Both books are published by Profile. I think Simon Sharma is too busy working on his third volume of The Story of the Jews to have penned a book about his five programs of civilization. But maybe if it comes out, we'll try to catch up with him as well and bring him back onto our show. So that is civilizations and we've looked at Mary Beard and if you have time you're on the internet you go on YouTube look Mary Beard up she is thoroughly entertaining in her discoveries of ancient Rome where she cycles around the city looking at all the type of things that give us clues from today's landscape about what happened in Rome 2000 years ago we'll be back with more books straight after this ad break People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. And now we're going to go to a give to a giveaways. I've got three books that we are giving away today. The first one is by Jonathan Janssen. We interviewed him a few weeks ago for his newly released book about the crisis in tertiary education in South Africa. This book that we have to give away is Song for Sarah, Lessons from My Mother. Song for Sarah plays tribute to Jonathan Janssen's mother and to all mothers who raise families and build communities in trying circumstances. Janssen offers this endearing praise song to contradict vulgar stereotypes of Cape Flat mothers. Tracing her life from peace, the peaceful town of Montague and the consequences of apartheid's forced removals that saw the family moved to a small house in the location and eventually to the Cape Flats, Janssen shows how strong women manage not only to keep families together, but raise them with integrity. With his trademark delicacy, human frankness, Janssen follows his mother's life as a young nurse and mother of five, of five children and shows how she dealt with her past, organized her home, made sense of politics, managed affection, communicated core values, how she lived her life. As a balance to his own recollections, Janssen has called on his sister Naomi to offer her own insights and memories, adding special value in this touching personal memoir. To win 
a copy of Jonathan Janssen's Song for Sarah, Lessons from Our Mother. All you've got to do is WhatsApp or SMS us. The SMS uh, number is 34519. The WhatsApp is 0618951019. Tell us your name and the title of the book that you're currently reading. That's SMS 34519 or WhatsApp on 0618951019. The next book we're going to look at, we're going to go to some young adult fiction. The first book that I'm going to talk about is most probably the most highly anticipated young adult novel of the year. Before it was published, uh, the the movie rights were sold to um, Fox 2000. So the book is in pre-film production to be made into a movie. It's the first of a projected trilogy, and the author, Tommy Adeyemi, was paid a seven-figure advance by, or seven-figure amount by the publishing company Macmillan to publish the book in all territories around the world, in the US, in the UK, and the Commonwealth. So it's a book that's got a lot of pre-publicity, pre-publish, yeah, publicity, pre-publish publicity, and uh, whoever has read it has felt that the power of the book and the the freshness and the quality of the writing and the maturity of the story is just really very, very powerful. Tomo Adeyemi is a Nigerian, but she currently lives in San Diego. And what she's done in this book, she's blazed a trail. She's taken a lot of Western African mythology and folklore, and she's added to it a dash of fantasy, and she's put it into a book that really is it's a creation of a new genre, Western Africa-inspired fantasy. Uh, it is nominally for young adults, but uh, as an adult, I thoroughly enjoyed the story as well. It is fantasy, so you're not really in Nigeria. You're not in a West Africa that you can identify, but it's the world that she creates is very, very strongly based on Nigeria and West Africa. You can see the Nigerian jungles. You can see uh, Lagos. You can see the desert of the Sahara and a city that looks very similar to Timbuktu. It's all in the book, but it's all in a magical reality. Zeli Adebola is the main character of the book. She remembers when the soils of Orisha hummed with magic. Burners ignited flames, tardas beckoned the waves of the sea, and Zeli's reaper mother summoned forth souls and brought back the dead. But everything changed the night. Magic disappeared. Under the orders of a ruthless king, the, mag- the, magi, the magi were targeted and killed, leaving Zeli without a mother and her people without hope. Now Zeli has one chance to bring back magic and strike against the monarchy. With the help of a rogue princess, Zeli must outwit and outrun the crown prince who is hell-bent on eradicating magic for good. Dangers lurk in Orisha, where snow leponairs prowl and vengeful spirits wait in the waters. Yet the greatest danger may be Zeli herself as she struggles to control her awakening powers and her growing feelings for an enemy. 
This is everything that you'd want in a book, a young adult fantasy. But the bedrock of the book is, as I said, West African mythology and folklore. The scenes are beautifully, beautifully written. The emotional turmoil, that whole aspect of interior literature that happens within Zeli's mind and within this princess, the princess who befriends her, turns her back on her wicked father, um, Amari, and then Amari's brother, the prince, who is pursuing Zeli to try in, uh, stop her reawakening magic in this blighted Western African-inspired land. The, the, their thoughts, what goes on in their mind, the the, the, the betrayals, the, the sense of mission, the ability that they have to bring magic back and then also just the the stupendously brilliant power of Tommy Adeyemi's writing all of this goes together to make a most most brilliant first book in a trilogy young adult but it's fantasy but it's really based in a part of the world whose mythology and whose folklore has by and large been neglected and one who mentioned together with Tommy Adeyemi's book Children of Blood and Bone, which is published by Macmillan, a book which came out last year, published by um, I think it's Zaf, um, Zephyr. Uh, the, it's, it's the same genre. The book is called A Jigsaw of Fire and Stars, and it's by Yaba Bado, also a, a West African writer, and it's also the, a book that's a modern, well, this is actually a very contemporary story, but based with a lot of mix, mixing of African African mythology and folklore. People, traffickers, loot and kill off the northern coast of Africa. An orphan baby is washed ashore in a sea chest laden with treasures. Santa, Santi joins Mama Rose and her magical traveling circus. The restless spirits of those who saved her clamor to be avenged. Everyone wants their life to matter. It's a powerful, haunting contemporary debut by an award-winning Ghanaian British filmmaker. So once again, you have this mix of West African here, it's the, in this case Ghana, West African mythology and folklore mixed together here with a very contemporary story of humans, you know, people, smugglers, the refugees streaming north from Africa to make their way to Europe. And it's all mixed together in a very, very powerful story. I think this is something we can look, we can try to predict trends in the books. Um, non Western mythology is becoming the basis for fantasy novels. Uh, there's already a series of books that have sold in the hundreds of millions in China being translated into English, bringing Chinese folklore. To a wider, uh, you know, fantasy folklore to a wider English-speaking audience. That's a trend that we're going to see a lot more of, I think. And we do have a winner for our first book, Sarah. Uh, we've had, um, we've had a few people WhatsApping us, or SMSing us. Um, Debbie was the first one. So if Debbie hasn't won anything in the last few months. We'll be phoning Debbie uh, to come and uh, collect her prize. I've got two more giveaways for today, so we'll do the next one right now. 
This one is quite a literary thriller. The back of the book says, this book is an experiment. We're experimenting together. You, the reader, are a part of the experiment if you'll agree to it. Normally, I don't let my subjects choose to be subjects. If you know you're being watched, you cease to be you. But I want you to read this. I wrote it for you. Do you consent? Sometimes you don't know what, sometimes you don't want to know what's next. The book is called Consent. It's by Leo Benedictus and it's published by Faber and Faber. And that's all that the cover of the book tells us about the book. It's, this book has been quite, um, quite enthusiastically received by the critics in Britain. Uh, it's a fascinating, disturbing, and original thriller that erases the boundaries of the genre and draws challenging new ones. So it's very different. If you're interested in this book, all you've got to do is send us your name and the title of the book that you're currently reading. Either WhatsApp us on 061-895-1019 or SMS us on 34519. That's 34519. And the next book that I'm going to talk about, also for young adults, uh, or for even younger than young adults, I suppose like your nine, your nine years and older. The book's called War, and War actually is an acronym. It stands for Wizards and Robots. And the book is written by two people. It's co-authored. The first of the two is Will I Am, who is a multifaceted entertainer and innovator, a seven-time Grammy Award winner. He's known for his work with the Black Eyed Peas, who have sold over 31 million albums worldwide. He's also an enthusiastic user of technologies. Intel Corporation appointed Will as Director of Creative Innovation in 2011, where he met his co-author Brian David Johnson. Will I Am advocates the importance and power of a good education through his I Am Angel Foundation. He has also created I Am STEAM. STEAM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, Arts and Maths, an elementary and middle school initiative to provide underserved students with learning and inter interaction opportunities beyond the classroom. And then the co-author, the future is Brian David Johnson's business. As a futurist, he works with organizations to develop an actionable 10 to 15 year vision and what it will feel like to live in the future. Johnson has worked with governments, trade organizations, startups, and multinational corporations to not only help envision their future, but, specif but specify the steps needed to get there. Johnson holds over 30 patents and is the author of both science fiction and fact books. He has directed two feature films and is an illustrator and a commissioned painter. In 2016, Samuel Goldwyn released Vintage Tomorrows, a documentary based upon Johnson's book of the same name. So, having read who the authors are, you just want to know a lot more about the book. The book is really a mashup of different genres and different ideas. It starts in 1489 at the Prejama Castle, which is in modern-day Slovenia. And when I read the book, I read the book to my to 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 my two to, to two of my sons. Uh, we actually went on to Google Maps. We looked up the Pajama Castle to see exactly what the place looks like. It's a stunning castle built into the mouth of a cave in mountains in Slovenia. The book starts with a war between two armies in medieval Europe. And all of a sudden, there is a 
invasion of robots from the future who come and just totally destroy these two armies, go into the castle looking for a book and killing people left, right, and center to get this book of magic. The book is somehow spirited out through secret tunnels underground, and that is just the beginning of the book. And from then, we meet a very, very diverse cast of characters, wizards who are in some form of sleeping suspension underground, uh, terrified that this attack of metal knights will come back to kill them all off. Then there's also the most, the main body of the book is set in 2052, focusing on a family, Ada and her mother, Sarah. Her mother, uh, Sarah Luring, is a, uh, a roboticist. She's creating a robot that has basic elementary artificial intelligence. And then there is this uh, future point in the year 3000 where a uh, form of alien life has invaded the earth. The earth is basically run by artificial intelligence comp- robots and humans living together but the world is being destroyed by this, the spawn that have come from space to invade the earth and then all three time frames joined together through time travel in is what really a fantastical and magical and also technologically driven quest to try save the earth but using the idea underpinning the novel is the idea of technology comparisons between technology and magic and is technology and artificial intelligence the enemy or can it be harnessed correctly? There are all these threads coming together uh, in what is really a really, very, very, very exciting young adult or children's book. So that's War, Wizards and Robots. The, 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 the writing and the, the plot carry you through from page to page. But it is very, very, very interesting. The whole idea of this mashup of different genres and different times and the idea of technology and comparison between technology and magic really does make war, wizards and robots a great, great, great read. Also, if you children are reading, it gives you the opportunity to broach the topic of technology within your families, within your houses. And I think that's a subject that is never far from the surface of any 21st century teenager or family. And uh, it's some interesting predictions that they're making about what life will be like in 2052. A very, very super connected world, drones, type of social media that Will I Am and Dave, Brian David Johnson have tried to predict using current trends, but just exponentially advanced makes Wizards and Robots War a very a thoroughly a thoroughly uh, enjoyable but also topical read we'll be back with another giveaway and two more books after this ad break People of the Book on 101.9 High FM People of the Book we are in our last 20 minutes so I'm going to do the next giveaway we giving our third book away. This is it's a short novel. 
It's very contemporary literary fiction. It's called The Adulterants, and it's by Joe Dunthorne. He's the author of Submarine. I am on the way to meet Mari and Lee at a pub called O'Malley's. We are friends again because it's hard to make meaningful new relationships when you're over 30. Ray is not a bad guy. He mostly did not cheat on his heavily pregnant wife. He only sometimes despises every one of his friends. And though his career as a freelance tech journalist is dismal, his afternoons spent churning out third-rate listicles in his boxer briefs, he dreams of making a difference. But Ray is about to discover that his special talent is for making things worse. Brace yourself for a wickedly funny look at the modern everyman. He is crippled by ironic misanthropy and semi-ironic underachievement. He is stubbornly ensconced in an adolescence that has extended well beyond his biological prime. His lacerating wit, with lacerating wit and raw affection, Joe Dunthorne dis- dissects the modern millennial psyche of a man too old to be an actual millennial. The Adulterance is an uproarious tale of competitively sensitive men and catastrophic open marriages, riots on the streets of London and internet righteousness, and one man's valiant quest to come of age in his 30s. So it's, it's very different, and it's, it's, it's raw, it's ironic, and it's very witty. If that's what you like, then WhatsApp or SMS us on... Or WhatsApp is three four five one nine. WhatsApp, sorry, SMS is three four five one nine. WhatsApp is oh six one eight nine five one zero one nine. With your name and the title of the book that you are currently reading. Jaguar Branston wants to fill the E-Pace's generous loading space with as many blankets as we can and take it to people who need it. Please become part of this initiative. Simply bring a new blanket to the Chayefem offices before the 31st of May 2018. Jaguar Bryanston will match every donation received. Let's warm this winter for someone who really needs it. Call 011-463-4603 for more information. This is People of the Book on 101.9 Chayefem. The next book we're going to look at is a real tome of a book. It's Directorate S by Steve Cole. Steve Cole is a Pulitzer Prize winning author of a book called Ghost Wars. He's a staff writer on The New Yorker and previous books that he's written have improved Private Empire and The Bin Ladens. Directorate S is subtitled as The CIA and America's Secret Wars in Afghanistan and Pakistan, 2001 to 2016. It's not a light read. It's a massive volume, nearly as long as War and Peace. Like Tolstoy's masterpiece, it is a tale of war, truth, family intrigue, high international skullduggery and betrayal. But this time, there's not much love. It is the sequel to his Pulitzer Prize winning Ghost Wars, which was the story of the CIA after the Cold War and its missteps with Al-Qaeda leading up to the 9-11 attacks. The narrative span of Directorate S is the story of the CIA's missteps with Pakistan's military intelligence service, the ISR, or Inter-Services Intelligence, in both Afghanistan and Pakistan. It's also about George W. Bush's global war on terror. 
it is much more than a story of spooks and terrorists. To date, S is the most comprehensive, you know, Directorate S is the most comprehensive and illuminating account of the terribly tangled story of Afghanistan, the extremists, and the West over the past 20 years. The pulling together of so many disparate angles and subplots is the is first-class <coughs> journalism, and the book Directorate S is basically an instant current affairs and war classic. More than deception, the book lays bare the depth of self-deception and hubris of Western politicians, diplomats, and commanders about what they were achieving in Afghanistan. Almost to the end, the American and British generals said that they were winning against the Taliban. Only two months ago, the heads of the UK, of the UK Army, the head of the UK Army who spent four years in Afghanistan, said he didn't see the British effort there as a defeat in any way. We didn't lose a single battle, Sir Nick Carter told a public audience. Fifty nations, the fifty nations which joined the US in hunting down Osama bin Laden and the Taliban's regime, made up an alliance that embarked on a haphazard campaign of nation building, as well as counter-terrorism in Afghanistan. Neither miss mission has been accomplished. Afghanistan is still in the grip of an insurgency more than a tenth of the countries under Taliban control, and Al-Qaeda has now returned, alongside new elements of its mutation, the so-called IS Islamic State. Despite Herculean efforts, spies, informants, and electronic surveillance, the CIA, for long periods, had no clue where its two antagonists, Bin Laden and the Taliban founder Mullah Muhammad Omar, actually were. It took 10 years to track down Bin Laden to within a mile of Pakistan's great military academy in Abbottabad. American agents were negotiating with Mullah Omar nearly a year after he had died in a Pakistani hospital. The relationship between the CIA and Pakistan's ISR was based on a paradox. The CIA needed ISR and the Pakistan army to gain intelligence on the movement and recruitment of Taliban and Al-Qaeda militants. Yet the ISR was covertly training Taliban forces from, a from refugee madrasas inside Pakistan to then go and attack Afghan governments and international forces in Afghanistan, including U.S. and British soldiers. ISR trained and cajoled suicide bombers and guerrillas to carry out ambushes with improvised explosive devices, all the while, all the time that American and Pakistan were allies. There is more than a suspicion that ISR officers babysat the Bin Laden family in Obotabad, where they were killed on May 2nd, 2011. British and American senior officers thought they could handle the ISR and the army, the Pakistan Army Command, through endless schmoozing and personal contacts. Field Marshal Guthrie, in the case of the British, sought out Pervez Musharraf, the commander-turned-president of Pakistan, on the basis of their friendship at the Royal College of Defence Studies in England. Successive American generals worked on his successor as army commander, Ashfaq Kayani. It was all to little avail, because the two commanders saw backing the ISR with its grip on the Taliban as the priority.
In time, this was to boomerang horribly on the Pakistani forces as the new homegrown Pakistan Taliban based in the Mesud and the Haqqani clan uh, and on the Haqqani clan networks turned on them and on the Pakistani state. The ISR lost its grip on militancy in its own country in Pakistan. This is all in the book Directorate S by Steve Cole. It's the CIA and America's secret wars in Afghanistan and Pakistan from 2001 to 2016. The book is almost mind-numbingly detailed, but as the pace of the story gathers, the accumulation of incident and analysis is spellbounding. It does for America in Afghanistan what Michael Gordon and Tom Ricks did for the Iraq misadventures in Cobra II and Fiasco. And like Iraq, Afghanistan's parable of deceit and violence keeps roaring on. It's a story that hasn't finished, but Steve Cole has taken upon himself to be the historian and the record keeper of the CIA and America's secret wars in these two blighted countries, Afghanistan and Pakistan, showing the contradictions and the betrayals between, you know, from Afghanistan and Afghanistan's Army Intelligence Service, the ISR, while being American allies, but building up Taliban forces after the American occupation of Afghanistan even, you know, was, was already happening. We'll be back with one more book straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We've had quite a full show. And to finish off, we've got one more book. This is a thriller. It's a psychological thriller. It's called The Chalk Man. It's by C.J. Tudor. The Chalk Man is a riveting and relentlessly compelling psychological suspense debut. Weaves a mystery about a childhood game gone dangerously wrong. And will keep you, the reader, guessing right up to the shocking end. Author C.J. Tudor is a student of thrillers that boldly ventures into the realm of horror fiction. And she's taken this passion of hers into her writing. Uh, Her writing reflects the fact that she's learned all the important lessons from the greats of the genre. In The Chalk Man, her impressive debut, she delivers a finale that makes her first novel feel more like the work of a seasoned author than a first offering. Perhaps more impressive than her playfulness is the absolute mastery of every element in the last third of the novel, which is something few, especially debut authors, pull off in the structuring and the the plotting of their narratives. This she does in a narrative that includes incursions into the world of dreams, a story that takes place that story that takes place in two different time periods and plenty of mental illness. Back in 1989, Eddie Adams was a regular 12-year-old kid who enjoyed vacations, going to the park, collecting things, and spending as much time as possible with his friends, Hopo, Metal Mickey, Fat Gave, and Nicky. They all live in a small, unexciting English village, and any bit of excitement is welcome. Their lives were slowly changing with every step further into adolescence, but they were suddenly thrown into a world of chaos when they found a dismembered body in the woods by following chalk figures left on trees, which eerily resembled their own way of communicating using chalk writing on surfaces with each other. Many bad things happened, and years went by, but the past refused to fade away. Eddie, now Ed, receives a letter containing a chalk man, 
30 years after the horrible events shook the town. The deaths started again, and Ed realizes that the past is playing a huge role in the present, and that understanding everything about what happened three decades ago is the only way to stop the bloodshed. The Chalkman alternates between flashbacks and the present day. Normally this technique is risky, but Tudor manages to increase the suspense with every page and has a knack for finishing chapters with questions or revelations that force the reader to keep turning. So it's not one of those books that you want to read late at night because you'll just keep turning the pages and pushing off your bedtime. Furthermore, there are two elements that make this an enjoyable read, strong religious undertones and well-developed characters. The first comes in the form of small-town religious fanaticism, and that remains interesting thanks to not only Eddie's personal opinions, but also those of his parents, both of which make the writing feel more like a discussion than a sermon. This is the book The Chalk Man by C.J. Tudor. It's published by Michael Joseph. It's available in shops. It's a dark psychological thriller. And as I said, it's one of those page turners that will just keep you up deep into the night. Just to recap the books that we've spoken about today, we start off with Mary Beard's book that's uh, it's a companion to her two episodes of the British art history um, documentary series, Civilizations. It's How Do We Look and Eye of the Eye of Faith. It's two essays in one book very very accessible beautifully produced book with wonderful reproductions of so many different works of art that she analyzes in her essays we looked at um, young adult fiction two books inspired by western african mythologies and folklore that's the children of blood and bone by tommy odiemi published by macmillan it's a huge book. You'll see it all over the shops, the bookshops. And then we also looked at A Jigsaw of Fire and Stars by Yaba Badeau, also Western African-inspired young adult fiction. Then we looked at War, Wizards and Robots. Will I Am, co-authored with Brian David Johnson, published by Penguin. Mashup of different genres, looking at the idea of technology. We looked at Steve Coles, director at S, published by Alan Lane. That's the CIA and America's Secret Wars in Afghanistan and Pakistan, 2001 to 2016. A real definitive book about these wars. And then the last book we looked at was The Chalk Man by C.J. Tudor, a dark psychological thriller. And, and we had three giveaways as well. And until next week... Continue reading Good Shabbos, and uh, we'll be talking more books next week this time.